Oh, good morning. Did y'all pray with me? Father, we, we're grateful. Yeah, we're grateful to have a place to gather. Um, we're grateful to have your word in front of us that we can study and learn um, your heart for us, learn the way that you've organized the universe, learn about the lives of saints that have gone before us so that we can see their pitfalls and, um, and the way that they did well and we can imitate and we can avoid. And, and so we just thank you for the wisdom that we meet with in your word. And so we pray, God, as we come, that you would give us uh, humble and unashamed hearts before your word. God, would that we would be among those who tremble when you speak, lest we should hear amiss, lest we should um, be negligent in our, uh, in our faith or in our obedience. Lord, this is your word, and we want to organize ourselves in light of it so that you would be glorified in us, so that your son would be made much of in and through our lives. And so would you come and would you teach us this morning uh, in and through your word? We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Um, Okay, so uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Let me explain. Today's sermon is going to be interesting, I think. So there's a difference in a text of scripture between what would be the main point, like what is the author trying to get across, and then the most important point in a particular situation, right? So sometimes the main point, which I'll give it to you here in a moment, of this text is really helpful, and I think it'll be really encouraging to you, but the most important point in my eyes in this text um, concerning our culture, our current um, situation that we find ourselves in, is not the most important point is not the main point. But we're going to spend most of our time on what I would deem as the most important point for good or for ill. And then I'll preach uh, the main point probably next, uh, next week unless we uh, go towards Easter, uh, Easter sermons, in which case I'll come back to it and preach the main point another time. So you're in Genesis 16. Uh, starting in verse one, let me give you the, the main point and then the most important point, and then we'll uh, work our way through. So the main point is that even justifying faith fails at times. That's the main point. Abram has just received a promise that he's going to have children from his loins. He's going to have children, and he believes God. And the text says in fifteen six Genesis fifteen six that Abraham believed Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And now what we're going to see is is Abram and Sarai both banking on the truthfulness of that promise and therefore making a bad decision. They're going to reason out from it a promise that's going to come by grace through the providence of God. And they try and attain it through fleshly means and they make a huge, huge mistake. You'll see that. That's the main point. Even justifying faith fails in all God's people who fail in their faith fail sometimes because of their faith, say, amen. Thank you for this picture. Now, the most important point in this text that we're going to spend most of our time meditating on is that getting the marriage relationship right is at the very heart of the gospel. And getting it wrong is in the essence of our fall into sin. It's, it's not accidental 
uh, Trey and I did not get to uh, observe this together um, before he did uh, organize our liturgy. It's, it's not accidental that he uh, turned our attentions back towards, as we looked at the law, he turned our attentions back towards Eve in the garden and Adam in the garden. These things we're meant, this text is meant to lead us back there. And I'll show you, I'll show you that. Okay, so you're in Genesis 16, verse 1. It says, now, Sarai, just really quick. There is a, a Hebrew construct called a vav consecutive. The way, uh, the way Hebrew stories are told is you just continually connect ideas with the word and. And they said this, and God did this, and they said this, and then this happened, and, 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 and so on. Mentally, we look at chapter 16 and it's like we're starting fresh, like there's no context. But the word now is just and. What Moses is telling you is that what's about to happen is directly related to what just was told to you in in chapter 15 about the promise of offspring and about uh, the promise of land. So God is is saying all these things. So we really should read it like this. Look in verse uh, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, uh, 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river Egypt, the great river. uh, uh, Let's see. To the great river, the the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We should just roll right through. This is the same context. So offspring is coming. God promises and Abraham believes it. And they're going to inherit this land. And Sarai has no children. We got a problem. Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female, interesting Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, pop quiz, where in the cotton pick did Sarai come up with an Egyptian servant? Being from Ur of the Chaldees, uh, you'll have to reverse this map in your mind because I can't do it backwards. But in Mesopotamia, they left Ur of the Chaldees. They went to Haran. From Haran, they went down into Canaan. From Canaan, they went down into Egypt where she was sold out by her husband and ended up in the the harem of of, um, Pharaoh. And then they came back to Canaan. And now we're told she has an Egyptian servant. Servant or slave. Where did she get that? Probably as a, as a gift, a bride price that, um, that Abram was given, that she was given when, uh, when Pharaoh took her. That's uh, if you think about Rachel and Leah, they both had handmaids as sort of a wedding gift. It's very interesting that there's carryover from that, that mistake that's going to come into play here. So she has a female servant in verse two. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now listen, that is an that is a um, emotionally um, intense verb. She's not just describing things. Picture tears in her eyes, hands on her face. This is intense. This is an old barren woman who just heard my husband is going to throw children from his loins. But if you go back and look in Genesis 15, one through six. You'll never see Sarai's name. She's not mentioned. So we've been barren this whole time and God has shown up. He's talked about offspring and we don't really know what he's talking about. And then finally he comes to Abram and he says, 
offspring from your loins, and Sarai is not mentioned. So what is she thinking as a barren woman? It's some other wife. God's going to give you some children through some other woman. So she's, she's reasoning, but she's reasoning from faith. Behold, now, now is significant. They've, the text is going to tell us they've been in the land for 10 years and they've never tried this. Why now? Why are they doing it now? You tell me. It's because they believe that God prom- what God promised to Abram that he was going to have offspring, that he's going to have them. So now, now watch this. You ladies, see if you resonate with this. She says, the Lord, his covenant name, Yahweh, has prevented me from bearing children. Isn't that interesting that so often when we experience certain things in life, we conclude that it's somehow God's punishment on us, that he's withheld us from something. And she concludes this in this emotional state. She concludes, the Lord has withheld me, prevented me from bearing children. So here's her suggestion. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Okay? It's a common practice. It was a common practice in the ancient world. We're going to see this with other patriarchs. The whole uh, baby battle between Leah and Rachel. Uh, Leah, the unloved wife, is just throwing baby after baby after baby. And Rachel, it's driving her nuts. And so she gives her servant to Jacob so that she can... um, they call it giving birth upon the knees. A servant gives birth, and now this is a child. And so it's, it's Rachel that names all of those children, and that's the idea. This, this, was a, this was a common practice, but it wasn't a right practice. The text is going to show us this is not what God would have uh, them do, and we'll, uh, we'll meditate on that next time we come back to these verses. But I want you to see this. She, she has this. This idea, this from faith that Abram is going to have children, but I am not going to have children. And so there's got to be another woman in the picture. And she offers her slave. Now in verse three or uh, in in, uh, at the end of verse two. So uh, go into my servant and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And the text says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. If you know your Bible, that takes you right back to the Garden of Eden. We are right back to the fall of mankind. This is seen in this scripture. Moses is telling us this as, a, as another fall, right? When you uh, think about this, just go back in your mind with me to the Garden. When God made the heavens and the earth, there was a hierarchy that he set into order. There was God, there were the sons of God, There were uh, man that was made the ruler of the earth, his wife, uh, and then the created order. And man was created in God's image, invited to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. And the sons of God were commanded to help them in that endeavor to the point where at one point in history, uh, they were to to give over uh, to to man's lordship. That's uh, sort of a side note, but I just want you to see this. You have God, and you have man, you have woman, and you have creation. It's a hierarchy. Now, in the fall, you have one of the sons of God, Satan, is in the form of a serpent and part of creation. He's deceiving Eve, who's leading Adam into rebellion against God. It turns the entire hierarchy of God's original order on its head. 
So now you have creation telling the woman who's leading the man to rebel against God. God is at the bottom and creation is at the top. It's, it's, a, it's a world that's turned upside down. And what's interesting is when God comes to, to pronounce blessing and curses, or mainly curses, but mercy in cursing, he doesn't start with the one who sinned the greatest, which is Adam. We would expect when, when God calls Adam, Adam, where are you? He, 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 uh, he hears Adam confess what has happened. And who's the first person that God talks to? It's the serpent. It's the now, the Lord of the earth. The one who had, uh, who had um, usurped man's role as the, as the, um, as the ruler of the, of the earth. And so God speaks first, curse to the serpent. Second, curse to Eve. And finally, he comes to man who had submitted to his wife in rebellion against God. And he says something very interesting. He does not say, Adam, because you ate of the, fr- of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, cursed is the ground because of you. That's not where he starts. Do you know where he starts? He says, because, let me just read it to you so you don't think I'm making stuff up. He says to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's not just that he ate. It's that he listened to the voice of his wife. And because he listened to her, he rebelled against God. Abram is doing the same thing here. Sarai gives this idea of like, hey, why don't you take my servant? What should Abram do? He should put his arm around his wife and say, babe, no. I love you, but no, I know this is hard, but we're going to trust the Lord and we're going to, we're going to see what God does, but he doesn't do that. It says he listens to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant and gave her to Abram, her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Can that ever happen? Our best laid plans that we think are going to be glorious end up shooting us in the foot. Can that ever happen? Yes, it can. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong, all of you husbands, right, who, who want to justify ourselves by saying it was your idea. Listen to this. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. And may the Lord judge between you and me. Husbands, how are you responding to that? That was your idea. <laughs> I took your idea. But here's the, here's the lesson of, of leadership is like counsel is one thing, but decision making is another. Abram made that call and now he's got to answer for it. Abram says to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Okay, so here's the, um, the thing that we're going to do now is I'm going to... Uh, just to reiterate, um, the main point of this text is that even justifying faith fails. They are reasoning from faith in the word of God and failing and failing in a pretty, uh, in a pretty major way. What I want to do with you is if I can find, no, I can't. So that's okay. Uh, there it is. What I want to do with you is I want to think with you about what I would call the most important point of this text, especially in our culture, our culture that has lost its mind concerning 
gender and hierarchy, what God requires of men, what God requires of women, what God requires of marriage. So I want to think about principles of when it is good and when it is sinful for a husband to listen to the voice of his wife. Listen to me. Sometimes it is sinful for husbands to listen to and follow the counsel of of their wives. And sometimes that's the only way they should go. So when God created man in his image, male and female, he gave men some strengths that he did not give to women. And he gave women some strengths that he did not give to men. He gave men some weaknesses that he did not give to women. And he gave women some weaknesses that he did not give to men. He created male and female different. And their strengths and their weaknesses are supposed to work hand in glove together. So that God can be glorified and we can um, have our weaknesses made up for and have our strengths have a purpose. Okay? So... um, The scriptures expect and invite and demand that we recognize and rejoice in that idea. I'm going to say that again. Scriptures expect, like this is assumed. It's not argued for. Just this is the reality. It expects, it invites us. It's a good thing that it's drawing us in. And it demands that we both recognize and rejoice in these things. So it's typical of a gender-themed discourse in the church to spend the first 30 minutes making apologies and explanations and caveats, which means at the base level, we're ashamed of what the Bible teaches. Okay? Um, I, somebody sent me a sermon the other day. It was so good. If you've never heard Vodi Bakum, um, our brother in Christ, preach, you need to remedy that. Go find Vodi Bakum. He's amazing. And somebody sent me this sermon, and he, he comes up to the pulpit. No joke. He comes up, and he like opens his Bible, and he goes, Hey, guys, like before we get started, I just want you guys to know I love men who beat their wives. And I was like, What? He goes, I, I have loads of friends who, who beat their wives, and they're welcome in my home. I just, I love, I have a heart and an understanding and compassion for men who beat their wives. And they're welcome at my table. We have great friends and great conversation, deep, long conversations with men who beat their wives. And I'm listening to this. I'm like, I, I don't understand. Like, teacher, explain. And he goes on and on and on, talking about how much he cares for wife beaters. And then he said, um, he, he said, isn't it interesting that every sermon in our culture that talks about the abomination that is sodomy, same-sex marriage, effeminate men, masculine women, every sermon that talks about those things starts with 30 minutes of how much we love those, those people. Do we love them? Of course. But the idea that we would, we would spend the, the lion's share of a sermon giving caveats and apologies and context and all these things instead of just stating what the Word of God states... These are rebellious things that need to be repented over, and that's the end of it. So it's the same thing with gender, uh, anything that has to do with masculinity and with femininity, what God expects within a marriage. <clears throat> There's, there, it's usually accompanied by all sorts of caveats. I'm only going to give two, and neither of them really are caveats. Number one, you should not be able to care less what the world thinks about the Bible's view of marriage, masculinity, and femininity. You, you should not be able to care less about the opinions of a culture that right now, all across our nation, they are debating, and some have already done it, about putting um, 
litter boxes in elementary school classrooms so that children who've been groomed to be confused about identity and who claim to be animals can have a safe place in class to defecate and urinate. Should you pause for a half of a moment and ask whether or not they approve of what the scriptures say? The answer is no. That's wild foolishness and we just should not care what they think. Okay, we're not going to apologize to them. We're not going to explain to them. We're going to glory in what God, God's word teaches. Um, <clears throat> Lila uh, and Lily got to babysit last night. Some of our uh, some some good friends of ours who are believers, they uh, they had gone to the library and their kids had bought or not bought but you know um, rented a couple of books. <clears throat> so they're there and, and the girls are going to read and Lila picks up one and, and the little girl goes, "Hey, we can't." Mommy and Daddy said we can't read that book. We didn't know what it was about but we can't read it. And so she's like, okay, makes a mental note. I'm so proud that she did this. Um, makes a mental note of like, when they're not looking, I'm going to read that book. I want to know what's in it that's so bad. And it's a little book called, what is it? Do you remember? The, uh, something like the bunny bear. And it's about a bear, a big bear, who always knew he was a bunny. And he liked to snuffle and he liked to hop even though he was a bear. And everybody told him, like, you're not a bunny. You can't be a bunny. You are a bear. And the whole book is about building this compassion for this bear who thinks he's a rabbit. And so it culminates with him running away from home without telling his mother so that he can go off and join the rabbits and be rabbit. And the, the, the cover image is, is him. It's so funny. It's all these, it's like a, a cross section of ground and there's all of these like holes with rabbits in them. And this bear who can't fit his right leg in a rabbit hole sticking out, trying to be a rabbit. It's not, it, it's like, it's satanic deception that is being played on elementary school kids that we won't let decide whether they're going to eat, you know, dessert or entree first, right? They have to ask permission for everything, but somehow in this regard, They can tell adults, this is what I am and we have to just bow the knee. Listen, we should not be able to muster up the ability to care any less about what they think about who God is and how God has made man in his image. So that's first caveat, if you could call it that. The second is just a warning as we start to talk about dynamics of marriage and family, of headship and submission, those kind of things. Scripture abhors a man who demands submission that he is not willing to model. Let me say that again. Scripture abhors a man who demands submission that he is not willing to model. So there are three institutions that God gives to men that are all God's idea, and God gets to write the Constitution on all of them. They are the family, the church, and the state. Okay? God's ideas, all of them. Family, church, state. And therefore, God gets to set the Constitution of all of those things. So the family is the ministry of health and education and welfare. That's our job, the family's job. Health, welfare, education. The church is the ministry of grace and peace. That's our job. It's to preach to a lost world. God has grace for you, and he's summoning you in Christ to be at peace with him, and he's the conquering Lord. The state is the ministry of justice. Now, God gives real authority in every genre, in every sphere of influence. He gives real authority, and listen to me, real parameters, like real guardrails. In the home, uh, 
husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. She's to submit to him. Does that mean that a husband gets to do anything in the home without repercussions? Or does he have parameters like, I don't know, love your wife as Christ loved the church? Yeah, so there's real authority and there's also parameters to the leaders in those institutions to execute their sphere of ministry. And listen, he requires all of those in authority to stay in their lane. They must demonstrate submission to him before they require it from others. Um, The president of DTS preached in chapel one uh, one time recently and it kind of went viral. So if you've heard this, I'm totally stealing it. This is not unique to me. But I want you to tell me whether or not you think this is the NBA, a description of the NBA or the NFL. Listen to this. 36 accused of spousal abuse. 17 arrested for fraud. 19 have written bad checks. 117 owned businesses that have been bankrupt two or more times. Three of them uh, uh, are, uh, they have done time for assault. 71, listen to this, 71 cannot get a credit card due to bad credit. 14 uh, have drug charge arrests. Eight shoplift arrests. 21 Uh, are defendants in current lawsuits and 84 drunk driving arrests in last year alone. Is that NBA or is that NFL? It's Congress. It's our lawmakers. It's the ones who say this is going to be the law and the land that we are going to ignore. Now, does anybody want to submit to that kind of leadership? The answer is no. They're to be lawful to show themselves in submission to God, and then they can come to us and say, this is what we would like for our nation to be about. Okay? We had, this is so funny, we had, um, we have a fire pit in our front yard. I had trimmed some trees. The boys and I are out there breaking them up, uh, burning them in the fire pit, and the fire marshal comes over. The, the burn band flag was, was flying high, and I've got a fire. <laughs> He comes over into my yard and he's like, you got to put that out immediately. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, there's a burn bin. And so he's, he was creating all these rules on the fly. This is also trash wood. You have to, you can only burn things like pecan and oak. And I'm like, where is the, is there really a list? Maybe there is. Maybe you're telling me true. Take your word for it. But here's why I did what I did with the burn bin right across the street, burn bin flag high in the sky is earlier that year. Uh, we were under a burn ban. It rained really good rain, and the county commissioner's court voted to lift the burn ban for like a week so that people could burn. And the fire marshal said, I think that's a bad decision. And so do you know what he did? He left the flag up in the air, presenting to everybody driving by, oh, the burn ban is still in effect. So he defied what he thought was bad policy locally. And so he showed me the way. So I can look over at the burn bin and say, I don't know if that's real or not because you don't treat it like it's real. Okay, so state has to stay in its lane. The church, this is going to offend maybe some, maybe all of you, and that is okay. If you get offended by this, you're just offended by the scripture, not offended by me. Um, Paul says in 1 Timothy, I do not allow a woman to preach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain silent. Talking about the church, in the church, not in the family, in the church. It would be true in the family too, but in the church, I do not allow a woman to preach or exercise authority over a man. And we have a nation 
um, and a county that is filled with women pastors who will, it's amazing to me, right? They're going to stand in a pulpit and open a Bible that they're disregarding to preach to you that this is how you should obey and this is how you should align your life to the standard of God's word. And they're in the very act of doing that, they're defying this word. Now, that's, that's problematic to me, right? If, I, if I'm reading Second Hesitations 2517 and I see like no man with the middle name of Moore can ever preach God's word, I have to stop if it's really in the text of Scripture, which it's not. But I can't claim to come as a shepherd and say, look, I'm supposed to shepherd you to the truth, to, to show you the standard of God's word so that it, can, it is the final authority for faith and practice in the, in the church. I can't do that knowingly rebelling against it. Can I be mistaken and imperfect in my obedience? I hope so, because that's where I am. But there's not a high-handed rebellion, right? There's a, there's a, as best I can, a submission to the word of God. And so some of these, um, these ladies, somebody was, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, hey, have you met the new pastor in Muldoon? And I was like, no, I, I didn't know there was a new pastor in Muldoon. And he said, yeah, she's, she's this and that. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I, I, you know. So in the state, we see the hypocrisy. In the church, we see when there's hypocrisy. But it goes the same in the home. A husband who wants his wife to submit to him should start by saying, listen to me, watch me. So a husband who wants to, uh, to quote uh, uh, um, Ephesians 5, husband, submit to your wife, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, um, should also... If she's having a struggle with that, she'd also be able to say, and watch how I submit myself to Christ. Watch how I love you as Christ loved the church. So just follow me. I'll give you, I'll give you a picture. So men, if you cannot look your wife in the face and say, submit to me in the same way that I submit my life to Christ, then you need to be silent about her duties and active about your own duties to Christ. Okay? Let her see you on your knees with an open Bible saying, Lord... Uh, search my heart and know me. See if there be um, any treacherous way in me. Lead me, guide me, sanctify me. Show me where I'm off. Show me where I need to love my wife. She needs to be able to see that. And ladies, um, one, of my, one of my favorite pieces of um, premarital counseling, just before we get into some of these things, one of my favorite pieces of premarital counseling, virtually every, and I think we've only had... Uh, yeah, like, okay, so in, anyway, recently, so my favorite uh, premarital counseling is with the gals in our church who sit down and they bring some weird-looking dude, no offense, Ryan and Josh, uh, to my, to my, they're great, we love them, to my table, and they're seeking marriage, I will, in their presence, I will ask the gal, who I know better than the dude, do you trust this man? That throughout the course of your life, when, when some event happens to your family, do you trust that he will listen diligently to you, to your opinion, to your desires, that he will listen close enough that at the end, when you finish talking, he can express your concern, your opinion, your desires equally as well as you have, and that you can, you can, you'll be able to hear and say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Do you trust that he will be that kind of man who will listen that carefully and then do what the Lord is leading him to do, whether or not it's in accordance with your counsel. 
And all of those, all of those ladies, and it's an unimaginable respect given to their, to their future and now husbands to be able to say, yeah, I think he's that kind of a guy. I think he'll listen to me. I know he'll listen to me. I know he'll hear from me. I know he's not going to railroad me, but I also know he's not going to follow me into disobedience or he's going to do his dead level best not to. And so ladies, you don't want some henpecked man. You want somebody who will love you, who will listen to you, and then who will follow the Lord. And if like Abram should have, like Adam should have, at times, throw his arm around you and say, my love, we're not doing this. I know your emotions say, this is where we need to go, but we're not going to go. Okay, so I think I have three things about why these things, uh, well, two things that I want to talk about from this text and then one about why this all matters. So men, your wives' emotions are a gift from God that has limits, okay? Your wives' emotions are a gift from God that has limits. Please don't dismiss what I'm saying as though what I'm, when I'm reading Sarai, I'm just reading that she's some dear little emotional thing. She's just having an emotional hiccup and, and she's just, you know, we can all uh, patronize and, and pity her. This is a woman who's desperately suffering. She's in a lot of pain. She thinks, think about this. She thinks that she's gonna be on the outside of the promise of God to her husband. When, when Gabriel came to Zechariah, he said, you and your wife, Elizabeth. When he came to, uh, to Joseph, it's Joseph and Mary. The, the, the wives are named. Sarah hasn't heard her name in the promise yet. So she knows God's going to do something with Abraham, but is it going to be with me or not? She doesn't know. She's very emotional. Her emotions are leaning toward disobedience to the Lord and brothers, when that's the case in our marriages with our wives, anytime there's, there's high emotion and you can see that there's a leaning towards disobedience, we are not to listen but to lead. That doesn't mean railroad. That doesn't mean, you know, shove. That doesn't mean twist arms. That means stand and, and, and be true. Like, we're not going to do this. Um, Sarah's words here. Some of you ladies, maybe you have resonated with seasons like this where she says, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's convinced that the Lord is against her. And it's heartbreaking. And so she's trying to fix it to, to be a greater help. Have you ever thought, man, my husband would be in better situation if I wasn't his wife. I'm not, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. Like other people are better. And there's this, this emotion that can descend when her emotions are leading toward disobedience. Oh, okay. So, so first of all, when her emotions are leading toward disobedience, don't listen, lead. When her emotions are leading toward obedience, where you are lacking obedience, listen and lead. Okay, so we're not just going to be dictated to by emotions. We're going to listen to what she's saying. Again, if her emotions are, leading, are, are, are um, leaning towards calling up obediences that you don't feel like you've got the courage to follow through on, listen to that. That's where the gift comes into play. So I want to read you something. This is a book, uh, like four or five times in our marriage, where we've been talking with couples about these things, and Gracie's like, I gotta, she'll go scrambling to find some popes and feminists to read about a lady named Charlotte Laval. Okay, Charlotte Laval was married to a French nobleman during the Protestant Reformation. This guy was captured by the Spanish. And while he was in prison, 
he, he converted to, uh, to become a Huguenot, a, a, a Calvinist, um, so non-papist. And before he publicly announced his conversion, he asked his wife, Charlotte, whether she was ready for the inevitable persecution that would follow. And she replied that Christ's church is always persecuted and that she pledged her faith as well. So he's like, I am convinced of this idea that's going to make us, it's going to bring us through a lot of suffering. Are you okay with this? She doesn't hesitate at all. And she says, go for it. The church means suffering. I'm game. Okay. Anticipated persecution didn't tarry. A bunch of the French Protestants um, were, had, been, had been slaughtered by um, some duke in 1562. And that group came to, this guy's name was Coligny. I'm probably saying it wrong. They came to him because he was a nobleman and had military training. And they said, would you come and would you defend us? He had been a loud proponent of the justice of standing militarily against a tyrant. So he's out there preaching a great game. Hey, we got to defy the tyrant and we can draw swords to, to protect our own and to defend. But when they come, he was not convinced that they would succeed. And so he told them, no, like we need you to, to lead us, to captain us. And he said, I don't think we can do it. And so no, it's right and it's just, but I don't think we can swing it. Now, that night, listen to his wife. She wakes him up with her weeping. She says, I'm sorry to wake you with my worries, but when the members of Christ are rent, how can one be insensitive? Your feeling is no less strong than mine, but you conceal it better. Do you take it amiss that your loyal half lets her heart or her tears fall on you with more boldness than respect? Here we are couched in comfort while our brothers, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, are some in prison, some dead in the fields at the mercy of the dogs and crows. This bed is to me a tomb because they have no tombs. These sheets are a reproach because they have no shroud. Shall we snore in sleep and not hear their cries in death? Now listen to this. I recall the prudent arguments with which you shut the mouths of your brothers. They came and said, please help us. And you gave prudent arguments that shut their mouths. She says, will you take the heart out of them too? I tremble because this this prudence, this wise reasoning. I don't think we can do it. That prudence savors of the world and not of God who has given you the skill of a commander. She reminds him of his gifts. The world needs you. So stand and do something. Can you in good conscience refuse? Does not your conscience bite you? Is it not the voice of God? Don't you fear that he will hold you guilty? Is the sword Is the sword which you carry meant to oppress the afflicted or pull out the nails of tyrants? You have confessed the rightfulness of taking up arms against them. You're all talk. You've confessed the rightfulness of it. Can your heart then abandon the love of right for the fear of failure? God takes away the sense of those who resist him under pretense of, of sparing the shedding of blood. He was using a pretense. I just don't want to shed blood. He saves the soul that is willing to be lost and damns the soul that would be itself saved. Monsieur, I have on my heart the blood already shed, their blood and your wife. Cry to God in heaven and from this bed I say, you will be a murderer of those you do not save from murder. That is godly femininity. Now watch what he says. He replies to her, 
Again, counsels of prudence. Unless we think too harshly of, of this guy, men, what would you think if like you make a call and it might just cost you your life, your livelihood, your country, you might lose everything. He says to her, look at our weakness. Put your hand on your breast and sound your constancy. Are you able to face the debacles, the reproaches of enemies and partisans who measure justice by success? The treachery of our friends, the exiles in store in foreign lands, the rebuffs of the English and the Germans, your shame, your nudity, your hunger, and what is worse, those of your children, they're going to come and pillage our house. You're going to see your babies dead in the streets. Can you face your death at the hand of the butcher after witnessing the body of your husband exposed to the jeers and the mobs and your children enslaved by your enemies? Wise counsel. He says, I give you three weeks. And if you're ready to face all this, then I will go and I will die with you and our friends. Pray on this for three weeks. I'm going to read you one more bit. She answered, the three weeks are up right now. You will never, listen to this, you will never be beaten by the virtues of your enemies. Brothers and sisters, if we had wives that would speak like this to husbands who are flinching in the face of adversity, your enemies will never take you by their virtue. You're better than them. And she calls him up. You will never be beaten by the virtue of your enemies. Use your own and let not the death come uh, and let not the deaths to come in the next three weeks be upon your head. I beg you in the name of God, don't let us down. If you do, I will testify against you on the day of judgment. That is glorious. So what do we do, gentlemen, with the emotions of our wives? We weigh them. Is this emotion leading us to make a gut, uh, a gut response in a situation that might be sinful? Or is the emotion of my wife calling me up to finally put my feet to where my mouth has been and to do what is right before the Lord? In a perfect world, the emotions of our wives should be a catalyst for heartfelt obedience to God in the home, in the church, and in the world. But if these good emotions run unchecked and steer toward disobedience, it is a husband's job not to follow into the disobedience, but to lead in obedience to the word of God. Abram, would that he had done that. Adam, would that he had done that. Secondly, there's a difference between, it's just a helpful category. There's a difference between submission and obedience, okay? Submission and is a general positioning towards someone that holds them as your superior. Obedience is doing what another person asks of you in a particular moment, okay? Submission, wives submitting to their husband, is simply requisite of wives in the body of Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So she is to submit to him in all things. There's this general sense of This is who God has placed over me for my protection in the Lord. Obedience is different. Obedience is in a a certain, uh, some of the guys that I've talked to that just have marriages and and families that are worth patterning after, they have have said, it's been my experience too, that obedience comes once or twice in the entire life of a marriage where there's some situation 
where we're both looking at and we're reasoning, right, from, from whatever foundation we're reasoning from, from the scriptures, we're praying, and a husband and wife looking at everything, they just see it different, right? They just see it different. That's okay. So what should happen there? Well, a husband should lead to say, hey, we need to, we need to take some time and pray. I want to make sure that I've understood you. And so he's got to be able to listen, be able to articulate, this is, these are your concerns, this is your opinion, this is what you think is going on. But at the end of the day, he has to decide for the family what, what they're going to do. That's what obedience would look like, that she would say, okay, in this situation, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting that the Lord is leading my husband. And if it goes, if it goes uh, well, uh, I'm going to give him credit. If it goes ill, I'm not going to shame him like I would want to. I'd say, told you so, buddy. No, like we're, this is, um, this is what God would have us, would have us do. Uh, let, let me say, we have some, uh, some people in this congregation that do this so fantastically well. It just beautifies, uh, it beautifies Christ, it beautifies marriage, um, so just, just keep that, um, that distinction in mind. There's a difference between submission and obedience, okay? Thirdly and lastly, these things matter because these things preach about Christ. Why, why do we care? Why do we care that husbands would love their wives like Christ loved the church and give himself up for her so that he might sanctify her? Why do we care that a wife would, would honor and respect her husband? Why do we care? Well, we care because the marriage relationship is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church where the man pretends and imitates Christ and the woman pretends and imitates the church. Now, the trick about imitation is that it can vary in its success or failure, which means that when a husband doesn't love like Christ and wives don't submit like the church, we are preaching falsely about Christ. We're preaching a false message. So to the bad... There are domineering husbands who are a terrible sermon, who just expect my way or the highway, everything's going to be done my way. I don't, want, I don't want chatter from the peanut gallery. I don't want opinions. We're going to do it my way. There's a domineering husband that preaches a bad sermon. What did Christ, think about this, what did Christ do with absolute lordship? Did he come and say, my way or the highway? No, he came and he washed their feet, and, he, and he, he, he used his kingship to serve. Interesting text. When he gets up from that, the most menial task, stuff that servants were not, uh, were not forced to do because it was too low and too humiliating, Jesus just did it as our Christ and King. He gets up, re-robes, sits at the table, and he says, you call me Lord and Master, and you're right, for that's who I am. He doesn't do that because he's the cosmic doormat. He does that because that's what Christians do with authority as they serve. Some husbands won't do dishes. Christ washed feet. Cowardly husbands are a horrible sermon. What a mess we would be in if Jesus had listened to the voice of Peter. Right? Remember the text? Who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, my father in heaven. You're Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Glorious. And then the very next paragraph, he begins to tell them, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, they're going to reject me. They're going to deliver me over to the Romans, they're going to crucify me. And Peter says, no, Lord, God forbid, that'll never happen. 
Do you remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? You're right, Peter. You're right. That shouldn't happen to me. He leads and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are fixing your eyes on the things of the world and not on the things of God. So we can't be domineering. We can't be cowardly. A pushy wife is a horrible sermon. We, we just watched a show um, last night. We're binge watching it as quickly as we can because we want to be done with it. But all throughout the show, the dad keeps asking the son for, for help. And so the son comes and then the wife, every time he comes home, the wife is just hammering him. And so he's got a bail on obedience to his dad. He, 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 and, and he keeps saying, dad, this is not what my family needs. It's not what my family needs. And so he's just as wishy-washy and, and all this stuff. Well, last night, <clears throat> the dad comes to the wife and he says, I wanted to talk to my son about this, but you and I know who wear the pants in the family. And so I figured I would just cut out the middleman. Can you imagine, brothers, a more emasculating description of you that somebody says, well, I need to I really need to know what this family is going to do. I really need to ask them for a favor. And so I'm just going to cut out the middleman. I won't go to the to the man and I'm going to go to his wife and she'll answer on behalf of the family. And what's amazing, they got through that conversation. She accepted graciously. And he says, oh, man, that's great. And he starts to walk away. And she says, you know, that's all you ever needed to do was ask. Well, that's all he had done, but he was asking his son, and she didn't approve. And so she was pushing her way in and and causing her son to dishonor his dad again and again and again. Domineering men, cowardly men, pushy women, right? An ignored, sidelined wife is a horrific sermon. Wives that are afraid to speak up, afraid that they're going to be crushed, afraid like, my husband doesn't care for me, doesn't want to hear my opinion. All of those things preach a, a terrible sermon. Listen to me, marriage cannot help but model our understanding of Christ and his relationship with his people. When we get it wrong, it's not a normal oopsie-daisy, no big deal type of error. It's wrong in the way that it would be wrong if we accidentally nuked the wrong country. It's a big, big deal. But when we get it right, brothers and sisters, it is a beauty that is beyond measure. A Christ-like servant Lord husband is a glorious thing. A church-like, affectionate, passionate lover of her husband wife is a thing beyond all beauty. When we get it wrong, it's really bad. But when we, get it, when we begin to approximate the reality, then the beauty of the gospel is set on display before anyone and everyone that sees us. We do not do these things for the applause of men. We do them because Jesus said we were the light of the world and we should shine into it. So listen to me, Christian. The world does not need your superior argumentation or your rhetoric. That would have been, uh, there was a time where if you wanted to win somebody to the faith or at least unsettle them from their position, you could win in a reasoned argument or debate and they would at least reject their position if you showed them uh, conclusively that they were wrong. It's not so anymore. It's not so anymore. People believe counterintuitive things all the time. Giving them rhetoric and argumentation in our day would be like giving a vomiting man medicine that he can't keep down. It, it, it It can't stick. What the world needs right now is winsome beauty. They don't need ideas. They need beautiful pictures. They need dancers. They need men who bow to their partner in invitation and women who curtsy in return. 
They need men to give themselves willingly and manfully for the good of their brides and women who offer glad praise in return for that kind of love. And what brings more light to the world than when we imitate a good king who loves his wayward people enough to give his body and blood for their guilt and their shame and their slavery? Jesus paid the highest cost at the moment when we were most worthless. And therefore, we hold him in highest honor when we see him in his greatest shame. Listen to me. We hold him in highest honor when we see him in his greatest shame. Notice this, Christians. We don't wear throne necklaces. We don't wear crown necklaces. What do we wear, ladies? Around our neck, on our ears, crosses. Crosses. Why? Because the cross was where our beloved Christ demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We love to see him on the throne. Yes. But if he were seated on the throne without the scars on his body, it would be no help to us. We would be just another prostitute thrown on the burn pile of history. But his scars mean our bridal gown. His suffering brought our access, our belonging, our position as the bride and therefore queen of the greatest king the world has ever seen. We have been beautified by his love. So come, let us submit ourselves to the one who gave his body for us when we were rebels. He really loves us. He is the most excellent among both gods and men. Who can compare with our beloved Christ? Come, take and eat. This is his body broken for you and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. Come to King Jesus, who is also our husband. Come and welcome to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for, um, as, as Trey read, for qualifying us to share in the inheritance with the saints in light by sending your son to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into his kingdom. And in him, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. We, Lord Jesus, we are your people. You bought us from slavery and then you wed us to yourself corporately. What you have done is amazing. Help us, Lord, to be, uh, to be appreciative of those things, but also to be imitators of those things. And there's no better place for us to start than here at the table where we remember what you did when we were at our worst. You gave your body to be broken. You gave your blood to be shed so that we could be free from guilt from slavery, from fear, from shame, and that we could be free to beautification by the power of your spirit, sanctification by the word of God, that one day we might stand holy and blameless before you, presented back to yourself, a bride. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would minister to us, that you would take the word that was preached that you would work it into our hearts and minds, um, especially as we come to this table. Help us, Lord, to eat and to drink. Lord, I pray for for husbands and wives here. If, uh, yeah, if there's there's repentance that needs to take place before we come to the table, grant us just a moment to to whisper uh, 
and to seek forgiveness and to seek pardon and then to come in one spirit and in one flesh to, uh, to this table. We love you and we ask you to draw near to us now. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.